Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. We are changing the world one show at a time. No soldier left behind. We are here for you. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives. Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour. Tonight, we're going to dedicate this show to Veterans Day, and also yesterday, the United States Marine Corps' birthday. So happy all Marines. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The Veterans Radio Hour name and all forms and abbreviations are the property of its owner, and its use does not imply endorsement or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. This network consists of three separate shows. This one, which is inaugurated this evening on Veterans Day, and also another show called Wounded But Not Broken by a wounded veteran hosted Patrick, Patrick Scrogan, uh, Overcoming Disabilities and Becoming the Best Version of Yourself, and a third show, Roll Call, hosted by Kenny DeCamp and his co-host Nadine Noki. This show is about what role you played in or in support of the military. And finally, this show, hosted by General Dave Grange, this show is about the military past, present, and future. We'll discuss a number of issues concerning veterans, service, current events. Okay, so for tonight's show, please be flexible. If the topic requires more time, we'll give it more time, and we'll adjust as we go along. The concept for tonight is really four topics. They're teasers for subsequent shows. The first topic will be 9-11 plus 20 years. The results... The next topic will be PTSD and TBI, signature wound for GIs for the last 20 years, and its effects on active duty service members and veterans. The third segment, disabled veterans, was it worth it? And last, transition of veterans to civilian life. The next shows that we'll have on a weekly basis We'll continue with these topics tied into new topics, fresh topics, every week. For instance, we'll have a topic on POWs, MIAs, medical care, battlefield to discharge. Second chance, those that received less than honorable discharges, and do they deserve a second chance or not, and how are they helped? Military spouses and veteran disability application procedures and new techniques. I want to thank my Ranger buddy, Ranger Doug, tonight for joining me on the show. I want to thank GTS Transportation, Dallas Corporation, and others that have supported the kickoff of our three different shows in support of our veterans of the United States of America. Now, starting off with 9-11 plus 20. If you recall, on October 19, 2001, an operational detachment of 5th Special Forces Group inserted on MH-53 Juliet helicopters, later known as the Horse Soldiers, 
had a mission to support the Northern Alliance against the Taliban, who were fighting the Taliban since 1996. They were in control after overthrowing the Islamic State of Afghanistan. That was the government authority that ran Afghanistan after the withdrawal of Soviet forces. This special forces team linked up with CIA operatives on a daring mission themselves to join the Northern Alliance and provide tactical expertise and not least, all hell from the skies by the U.S. Air Force. For 20 years, those battles continued in Afghanistan, from direct action to advisory work, to foreign internal defense, just about everything through the spectrum except for nuclear warfare. And remember why we began attacking the Taliban and al-Qaeda in Afghanistan since they harbored those responsible for the World Trade Center disaster, the attack on our soil, where we lost 2,753 Americans and others from other nations. 184 losses from the Pentagon, both civilian and military. And of course, United Airlines Flight 93 with 40 KIAs. And many say that the passengers that attacked those that took over the aircraft was the first attack of the rebuttal, or I should say the first attack of the going after those that caused this attack on our soil. And since then, 420 more have died from 9-11 attacks linked to cancer, 204 New York firefighters related illnesses, and 241 New York police officers also related illnesses. So we asked tonight of our guests, was it worth it? Did we keep our nation safe by projecting forward and fighting the enemy abroad? Is it better to bring war to the enemy versus defensive-only posture? Let al-Qaeda, Taliban, and others come to us or go after them. We did bring terrorists and other evildoers to justice. We did free the oppressed. We delivered physical and moral aid to a war-torn nations, both Iraq and Afghanistan, but it was, came with costs. KIA, WIA, maimed and killed civilians, and a lot of money. We did lay down a foundation for the new government to fight terrorists, not to harbor terrorists in both Afghanistan and Iraq but in particular Afghanistan. Since 9-11, there were 3 million, more than 3 million service members that served in Iraq and Afghanistan and some other combat zones. Of 18 million vets that we have today, 20% served in post-9-11 era operations. And by the way, 11% of those were women. Focusing just on Afghanistan, remember, small compared on casualties, small compared to Vietnam, Korea, World War II as examples, but we did lose 2,312 GIs, over 20,600 wounded. In Afghanistan alone, 
people were awarded 18 Medal of Honors. There were 1,140 coalition troops KIA from 50 different nations. Compare that to the numbers the United States lost. And remember, 69,000 Afghanistan Afghans lost their lives to date. Now, in recent last two months, we left Afghanistan rapidly in chaos. And the way we did it created a crisis, not only in Afghanistan, but some might say we opened the gates of hell in the region, Central Asia, Southwest Asia. Now the estimates are approximately 80,000 Afghans need immediate evacuation. Many slowed down by a bureaucracy of special visas approval. Go back to Iraq. As of September 2021, after 31 years of dealing with Iraq, no-fly zones, Gulf War, the Second War, 4,505 U.S. KIAs, 32,292 WIAs, and 322 coalition, coalition troops, KIA from 37 countries. Not too long ago, around 2016, Baghdadi terrorist leader used the remnants of Al-Qaeda to build ISIS. ISIS came through with white Toyota pickup trucks and chased off American-trained Iraqi army and the greatest military tanks and other equipment known to the world. They kicked out or enslaved Christians, Yazidis, They took over 43,000 square miles of Syria and Iraq. They recruited 65,000 foot soldiers and enslaved 8 million people. That's important to understand because of how the terrorist organizations are rapidly growing today in Afghanistan. Iran took advantage of this situation as they're doing now in Afghanistan. Iraq alone 608 U.S. KIAs, due to their training and technical advice on improvised explosive devices against our GIs. There are many other fights, Libya, Yemen, Syria. There are a few examples as a result after 9-11. There are many accomplishments. If you just take, take a look at key leadership, that was captured, killed, and later executed, Saddam Hussein, bin Laden, al-Baghdadi, and the 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's in Getmo. Many other terrorists have been killed as well, from those that plan attacks on the USS Cole and other places around the world. And I think it's good to pay tribute to our law enforcement agencies that took care of and stopped many terrorist attacks on our soil that you very seldom hear about, but they're out there. So at this time, I do that backdrop on 9-11, 20 years after, is what has that done to our armed forces on readiness, on morale, on what the status is on PTSD and the signature war, last 20 years, disabled veterans and those that have transitioned 
from that war, those, those wars, to civilian life. And with an all-volunteer force, it's very important for our veterans, these matters that are taken on and made right, if not right, because of their sacrifice. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985. Serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. All right, on on the phone with us now, one of our guests tonight a veteran of World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. is my father, Lieutenant General Retired David E. Grange, Jr. So tonight he's going to, he's our first guest that called in on 9-11, plus 20 years. Where are we today from continuous conflict and results of our efforts focused on Afghanistan and Iraq? We'll get his opinion as he compares this last 20 years to other wars. All yours. Okay, David, you might just I could just say that, you know, I, I I was in World War World War Two. I was in in the Korean War and I was in Vietnam. And then I after I got out of the army I served for seventeen more years with with the North of Grumman Company with the training system that the Army had put into place which had, did a lot of great work with the National Guard as well as with our own our own units, our active army units. But I would say that I I was a draftee. I I came as a draftee in 1943, and uh, and I was in an airborne unit, parachute outfit, which was a a new concept, of course. And and I was a draftee. Uh, I then was I was in the Korean War. Uh, I had stayed in the army. I and 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 I uh, went to OCS and and became an officer. And I served had two tours in the during the Korean War. That was a you know a draftee army. With a lot of very highly experienced combat NCOs that uh, came from World War II, as well as officers, and, and and really did a wonderful job in the Korean War, and then we I was in the Vietnam I was in Vietnam on three tours, three years, uh, as a battalion commander, a brigade commander in 101st Airborne Division, as well as an advisor for one year. So I spent three years over there with the Vietnamese Army. 
Uh, and then the 17 years as a civilian uh, training all the uh, all the, the units, mostly National Guard units. Uh, after after I became a civilian, but I was there for 17 years doing that, doing work. Actually, really worked at with that, all that uh, training exercises that uh, were the, the vehicle, were the vehicles that were used for brigades and divisions and corps. Now I don't know how you want me to go at this. Uh, as far as where what I think about what happened, you know, in Afghanistan and, and in Iraq, I think one thing that that we prove every time we get into a combat is the old saying that uh, all we learn from history is that we learn nothing, and we made some, you know, some serious serious mistakes. We made serious mistakes in Iraq, and uh, and of course Afghanistan was a very unique war, which would be a difficult to win and. Most of our, I think, several of our most important and powerful nations in this, in this, in my time anyway, learned it the hard way that that was a that was a tribal organization in Afghanistan, and and it was all hard to make them really think as a nation. Uh, but the things that we did in Iraq were kind of crazy things that we 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 knew how to fight the war. It was probably the best army we ever sent to the field was the one we sent to Desert Storm. At least that's how I feel about it. And the reason I do that is because we had wonderful new equipment. You know, we had the, what they call the, the, the big five uh, new tanks, new new personnel carriers, some new helicopters, some new weapons. And they were brand new when we got them, and, and we never went to war with them. And then we knew a lot about about training, and we knew a lot about who should do the training. And one of the great lessons, lessons where we learned where we we're, we're a much better army for it today is uh, the importance of training our NCOs. And I think that's why I always say the best army we ever sent to the field was the one we sent to Desert Storm. And, there were, and the war only lasted about a week. Uh, and, and, we, and we took on a pretty formidable force with our arm, with our divisions and corps, two corps that went over there. Uh, it only took a week to prove that we were the, the, probably the best fighting outfit in the world. And uh, and uh, it was based because we took, we found out that they had to have experienced NCOs and and you trained NCOs and NCOs had to go to school, uh, and that's why I think that war only lasted a week. Uh, that was the Desert Storm. New equipment, good equipment, well-trained NCOs, and and all the professionals. All the course, all the officers went through all the professional schooling that they were you know, required to have. Uh, what do you think the effects are from the rapid? Almost no notice withdrawal um, out of Afghanistan. What are, what's going to be the fallout of troop morale and, and geopolitical issues in Central Asia, et cetera? Well, I, I just couldn't, I can't, I couldn't understand why. First of all, I didn't know why the State Department was, was, was the supreme uh, commanders of, of all the things that were happening over in Afghanistan. I don't know why we didn't allow someone like the 82nd Airborne Division. If anybody knows how to mobilize a lot of people, get them to an airfield, get them on airplanes, and get them to some place on the other side of the world, the 82nd Airborne Division, and most of our divisions are active divisions, certainly. They know how to do that, and they do it very well. I don't know why we let the State Department be responsible for the airport you know, in Kabul. I think that was crazy. And then we had the Army under, under the, the, the command or in the under the command, actually, of the of the State Department, and the first ones that left was was the military. When we sh- I thought we should have been the last ones to leave, as we usually have been. I mean, you know, we've done the, you know, we fed Berlin for how many months? We fed a whole city of people, millions of people, 
somehow knows that the Russians, if they wanted to boycott the railroads, we said, go ahead and do it. And, you know, we supplied that city by, by air, you know, the Berlin airlift. Why don't we open getting the history book out and look at that and see how we did that? I mean, but, but the thing in the airport was just ridiculous to me. And then to leave all that equipment behind and not destroy it. You know, I, I was... I, in the Korean War, when the Chinese came in, and they were really putting a lot of pressure on us, you know, they chased us all the way from back from the Yalu River back down to Seoul, took Seoul back, and we were we ended up south south of south of Seoul, and and in pretty fast time, you know, we fought a pretty smart delaying action, but they still chased us out, and and uh, I, I don't know what we did in, in in Afghanistan. We just walked away and left all that equipment. I was one of the last folks to get out of out of out of Pyongyang and the, the capital of, of North Korea, and and uh, we had we had some a lot of equipment there on, on flat cars. There were some there was some fighter aircraft that had been delivered delivered. They were our flat cars. We had tanks. We came back and we destroyed them. We were being pursued by the Chinese, but we still destroyed all that stuff on those on those cars, unless there was stuff that we could use like foodstuffs that the Russians left there. And uh, and uh, we use that to, to, to supplement our own rations heading south and keeping ahead of the fighting and delaying action with the Chinese. But we destroyed all that equipment. To leave all that equipment there would have a terrible, a terrible effect on our on our units, our active units. I know, I can just imagine you know how the how the Ranger Battalion lads felt when they see the the the, the, uh, the, the our our enemies in in, in the. In, in in Afghanistan, putting in a little bit of a parade in the capital city, and they're carrying the same rifles that we used to shoot our, our troops. You know, the best rifles in the world. They're in the hands of the enemy. The machine guns, the best machine guns around. We left thousands of those behind. Uh, that, how how we could have done a thing like that? Why we didn't go back and put a B-52 strike, or at least go in with some fighters there and destroy that stuff so it couldn't be used? We had we had equipment in in, in Korea that we destroyed up in Pyong, up in Pyongyang, and didn't allow it to fall into the hands of the enemy. You know we've given. Yeah, well, we appreciate your perspective on this tonight. Thanks, Dad, General Grange, Airborne Ranger, Hua, and thank you very much for your comments. Okay, thank you, thank you. Enjoyed talking to you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Okay, on the line with us tonight, we got uh, Andy Anderson, special ops uh, retiree, has a lot of experience, and Andy's going to talk to us a little bit tonight about uh, 9-11 up through 20 years. And before we do that, Andy, I'd like you just to let the, let the people listening tonight know a little bit of your background. So just give us a quick rundown on Andy Anderson. Well, the first thing i got to start off with is I'm one of the old guys now, I guess. It used to say I was approaching middle age, but I just hit 70 years old. So not to bore you guys, but I had 30 years active duty, 23 in Special Forces, and I was so fortunate. It was almost divine intervention. I got to go to 5th Group as a 5th Group engineer, and then our, our great, iconic group commander there, Jim Guest, who's we were supposed to have a reunion for him soon, but... Hopefully we can still do that. Anyway, he was the fifth group commander, and uh, he says, I'm giving you one chance to go to the Q course. If you screw it up, don't even come back to <laughs> from camp and call. <laughs> so I was uh, fortunate enough to get through there. I went 
and I hung out with some some really good guys that were in my Q course, John Mulholland, <clears throat> Jeff Putz, you know, John Nye, a bunch of other guys. Uh, and so we were part of the fifth group of Legion back there in 1983. Um, and so from there, and I finished up a mediocre career of 30 years, but I was able to hang out with some really good guys. And uh, as far as combat goes, I've never been to Afghanistan, but we're going to talk about the 20 years since 9-11. I can give you a little bit of perspective, mainly based on <clears throat> close relationships with great Americans that have been there. Uh, I was in Desert Storm with a amazing commander that uh, should resonate with a lot of the listeners if they're about our age, and that was Frank Tony, who ended up as a one star, but uh, he had more influence on people than probably a lot of four stars. And he was he was a warrior, 100 percent. And uh, all of us that served with him and under him have nothing but fond memories of us. Because by the time we went to Desert Storm, we were third of the fifth and then first of the third. And by the time we went to Desert Storm, it was a cakewalk because we were trained so damn hard under Frank Tony. So the old adage about, you know, the more you bleed in in training, the less you'll, or the more you sweat in training, the less you'll bleed in warfare. That was Frank Tony. So, um, you know, I go, I could go on and on about him and some other great leaders that I was just fortunate enough to serve around and under. Yeah, so, we know we know them all, just like you, and uh, you're right on. We we second that. That's that's wonderful. Yeah. When you saw well, when you you were talking uh, the other day about uh, out in our training expo about uh, the special forces and, and other, other uh, units. It's not all about special forces, obviously, but how they went in at the beginning after 9-11, how quick they went in and the readiness level, and then kind of take us through a little bit, of, a little couple points maybe of what you heard, and then well, how you think they think the way we came out. So just kind of walk us through that. Well, I can just relate to, to great – Green Berets that I was fortunate enough to be good friends with. Um, and John Mulholland, God bless him, he had the weight of the world on his shoulders. And in 9-11, he was a fifth group commander. And, you know, it was right, right place, right time. And so he, he, had, he had the mission to really carry the whole weight of the United States against our enemies and take them into K2 and then into Afghanistan. So all that's been captured pretty well in a lot of books, one of which I think the best is The Horse Soldiers, and that focuses on ODA 595, and they were great Americans, and they're still out there carrying that message. In fact, uh, there's a new, brand-new book out called uh, The First Casualty, which is about the CIA Team Alpha that went in. It's about half of those guys were, were Army Green Berets that had been detailed and started working for the agency. So you're talking about being out there alone and unafraid, taking – the Battle of America to our enemies in Afghanistan, they damn sure did it. And what they were able to accomplish with a hell of a lot of air support in six months was just phenomenal. It's never been repeated in the history of, of warfare. And then after that, my personal opinion is that we, just like Vietnam, we tried to conventionalize an, un, an unconventional theater. And if we had just left just a few ODAs over there with a lot of uh, support, it would have been a different 20 years. But, you know, of course, we don't have 
magic wand to go back and change any of that. So uh, I've got a lot of perspective on it, but not from first person. I've got it from second and third person. So go ahead, Dave. you want to ask another question? Well, I, I just uh, – the training was extraordinary, and it just shows what well-trained people can do uh, with resources – I'm sure in Somalia, some of those uh, the soft special ops people would love to have some of the resources that that the ODA had uh, going in there working with the Northern Alliance. But anyway, um, how that makes a difference, how, how a few guys, 12 guys basically, the way they're trained, can go in there and destroy that amount of enemy and set conditions for the rest of the conventional forces, other soft forces, other coalition forces, then to come in and pile on and get larger, smaller, whatever, but a fairly good size of deployed people, not like Iraq, but a lot, uh, to fight the enemies. So uh, what do you, what's your feeling on um, now that that happened, the casualties that we had in the beginning of the, of the show, you may have not, not have heard it, but we talked about the casualties, the KIWIAs, uh, the United States had uh, as, also in Iraq. And, of course, we're still in Iraq. Uh, but in Afghanistan, we're not. And, and, the, and the, way, the way we left in that, is that going to affect, you think, the morale, uh, the training, the readiness? Uh, what, what's, that, what's that effect you think is going to be on our armed forces or veterans that serve there? What's your opinion? Well, that's about a, you know, a six-beer story, a six-beer question. Or one question with a six-bear answer. But go back to the training. I do want to make one positive point. You got those ODA Green Berets from, you know, E6s, 7s, 8s, warrant officers, 1, 2, 3, 4, and captains on ODAs that went in there. They wrote, they to a man, they referred back to the training that they had received in Western North Carolina in, in what we call, used to call Phase 3, and then Robin Sage, where they had to go in and deal with very difficult indigenous forces. The good thing about training is it transcends, I think, a lot of the of the operations. And and we go back and we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think special forces training is the most intense and most complete of any service out there. Of course, I'm biased, but I don't think we're going to train our Robin Sage, which is unconventional warfare, which prepared those guys going into Afghanistan better than they ever thought they would be prepared because they were able to deal with General Dostum and probably some of the most brutal warriors on the planet. And they had respect immediately. And, you know, you cannot negotiate from a position of weakness. So those guys went in there. They were tough and ready, and they immediately established respect and rapport and then they were able to just accomplish almost miracles. So if you get the enablers to those 12 guys on the ground and we don't change our training too much, I think they'll be fine for the next generation. Doug, do you have something for Andy? Andy, thanks. Appreciate your participation. I'm going to wrap it up. And I suggest also that we ask some of our other guests for their observations just to kind of cap it out because I think each of them is going to be able to describe different hey, things. Hey, Ranger Doug. Let me throw this out to you. Maybe you can work it in at some point in your in your podcast. I got a salute to all our veterans because it's Veterans Day. So this is, goes to those guys that have gone before us. I've lifted my glass and drank my share of the wine that's known as pride. I've walked among some gallant men and matched them stride for stride. I filled my mind with devious ways to defeat the enemy's goal. I kept inside for loyalty's sake. 
the deeds that can never be told. But the need is gone for my service now, so I'll hang up my green beret and sip no more of the wine of pride till called again someday to all our veterans. The Opresso Bear out here. Well done. Thank you, sir. Out. See you, General. So we've had some perspective on uh, your father talking about the long history and how we act as an army. Andy Anderson discussed special operating forces, which is a special case. And we began the war thinking that special operations could do a great deal of, of good, and it did. And its effect was strategic, but not lasting. And as we always do as Americans, we have eventually had to conventionalize and industrialize the thing. And it became uh, kind of a salami slice a year at a time, kind of like what was experienced by people who went to Bosnia. Only in this case, we were fighting a long-duration war. The enemy found a sanctuary out of country. We ran many operations, and we did extremely well at the tactical level. After a while, the population of our own country became so used to it, it was like it wasn't really going on. And what your father said about energizing the population, of course, in this war, we weren't able to. And the big difference since his war in World War II was we had created the interagency in 1947, and that gave all these other agencies that had their own goals, objectives, budgets, timelines, and everything else a way to jump in and begin to act in what we call now phase four, which is what we were in. So we went through and we dominated, but we trained up a force that we didn't have clear assessments of. We didn't understand that without our support, our supplies, and even our training and intelligence, it couldn't stand on its own. And then in the end, similar to Vietnam, a congressional fight broke out amongst an administration and a Congress and it was decided that we would simply cease fighting and cease supporting our partners and allies. And in the end, instead of doing a withdrawal under pressure, we had negotiated our way through a number of years of peace talks and other negotiations with an enemy and with a friendly government. We simply withdrew. And so and instead of doing a withdrawal where we would destroy the equipment, we actually conducted what's called a non-combatant evacuation operation, or NEO. And that is where it places the State Department in in the primary position with the military forces simply in support. At the end, those forces were constrained to a level which allowed them only to occupy the area around the Hamid Karzai International Airport, thus having us give up the, the strategic Bagram Air Base, which would have made a, a large-scale withdrawal on that way uh, much easier, perhaps. Then, in addition, similar to the Bay of Pigs in 1962, we ended up or 61 rather, we ended up with a plan developed under one administration that was executed by the next administration, only uh, there were certain things that the first administration might have done that the second administration either did not do and was not capable of doing or elected to do something else. And, and that's without any prejudice directed at either administration because as soldiers, we respond to the orders we get. We're not political. We simply move ahead and try to get the job done. The problem is to connect the operation and the campaign to the strategy and the policy, and that's where we as Americans have a lot of work to do before we go out again. The big problem we have is we probably have suffered some demoralization in the forces. We probably have suffered some demoralization of our own populace, and we may have emboldened some of our enemies. Uh, that concludes my remark on the subject. Well, Doug, I appreciate it, and, uh, and two, two great guests. appreciate your wrap-up comments. Uh, we're going to move now to uh, a couple comments on um, transition from the military to the civilian civilian life and its effect uh, on on the GI. What can what problems veterans have? What issues are out there? To give us an idea of what we can help take on moving forward. So at this time we have Sergeant Major Lamb on the phone. 
Sergeant Major. Hey, hello, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I have on the phone with us uh, Command Sergeant Major retired Rick Lamb, Ranger Special Forces, uh, and everything else. I appreciate you coming on with us tonight. Uh, I think the the veterans on the on the call would love to hear a little bit about your background. If you just give us a quick rundown on what you did as a GI. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a retired command sergeant major. I was uh, spent all the time in uh, U.S. Army Special Operations, uh, both in and out of uniform. I had about a 40 plus year run, and I think I worked uh, soft operations from the tactical level to the strategic. I uh, got to drag my boots through about 50 different countries across five continents. And uh, I credit you with, uh, with, with making that soldier. Cause I started out uh, as a young corporal under you in uh, first Ranger battalion and uh, had a great run. I served in two, uh, two of the Ranger battalions and uh, four of the five special forces groups and uh, w- would do it all over again if I could. Well, great. Well, thanks for coming on with us. Uh, we just, we just finished a, a segment uh, called 9-11 plus 20 years, where we are today from the continuous conflict and results of our efforts. Uh, and, we, and we focused on Afghanistan and Iraq. And we asked you to come on to talk about how these warriors transitioned to civilian life, just some, some pointers from you, what you guys have learned through experiences as well as uh, the studies that your commands have put together trying to take care of GIs, make that transition. But... Before we do, because this will set the stage for some of the points you're going to make, I believe. When we left Iraq the first time, and when we left Afghanistan recently, and there may be separate answers, it's up to you, what effects did that have on our armed forces, and particularly the GI himself or herself? Well, you know, the biggest thing to me, sir, is that, um, you know, history always repeats itself if, if you're dumb enough to not study it. And uh, I, I, I take it back to your generation. I mean, we, we were just living in 1974 all over again. You know, we reneged on our uh, on our part of the Paris Peace Accords. And uh, with, with the, the vacuum that, that was left, the, uh, I mean, three nations fell to communism, you know, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Over 5 million people across those three nations died. About 250,000 of them drowned at sea. And uh, so there, there, there are stark parallels to be drawn uh, between, you know, what you went through as a Vietnam veteran and what the Afghanistan and Iraq uh, veterans are going through right now. But, but I would offer them the, the, the same challenge is that, uh, you know, if I look back at my career, I mean, I, I came in in uh, 1976, right? So uh, the fall of Saigon was still, I mean, it was etched in, uh, in, in the hearts of, of a lot of the guys that had fought in Vietnam. So, uh, but, but again, you guys stepped up. I mean, you know, so what I saw basically was, uh, was the Vietnam veterans were some of the most switched on and professional soldiers I would ever serve with, you know, for over 40 years. It was nothing like what was portrayed in the media and the movies of the day. I mean, the lessons I learned from, from guys like you, from uh, Jack Record, Merck, Spencer, Guy, Booth, Kelly, Murphy, I mean, countless other guys. I can honestly say, I mean, it made me a professional soldier. And uh, it actually saved my life as I, as I go back and, and was able to execute the stuff that you guys taught. And again, I, I don't say that lightly. 
So, and again, I, I look at the, that same Vietnam cadre uh, of skilled soldiers. They built a professional military. They stood up the Ranger Regiment. They activated five active duty special forces groups. They had two more activated in the National Guard. They established the National Mission Force, the Joint Special Operations Command, the United States Special Operations Command. And angry as they were, they kept faith in the resiliency of America or institutions or people. And they found a purpose in fixing the things were broken. And that was just on the military side. In the civilian sector, I mean, the Vietnam veterans, they created successful companies like Nike, FedEx, GoDaddy. I mean, they ran for office. They became congressmen, cabinet secretaries. And, and, and for the Iraq and Afghanistan vets, I'm starting to see the same spirit. You know, I see the Black Rifle Coffee guys, the Grunt Style uh, Apparel, the Three Rangers Whiskey, the Horse Soldiers Bourbon. I mean, all these guys are, are running successful businesses. I see guys like Mike Waltz, like uh, like Crow, like Crenshaw being elected to Congress. And uh, so so I, I'm, I'm optimistic. I mean, I know the guys uh, are, are feeling bad, but but I look forward to the changes and improvements that uh, that these cats are going to make in, in the military and politics and business and academia, because I think you've touched a nerve. And, and, and I think some of these kids are pissed. So, uh, so I, w- I would challenge each and every veteran, you know, to uh, we'll talk about later, you know, s- seek some balance continue to improve their fighting perimeters. I mean, and, and focus on, uh, you know, the five pillars that, uh, of resilience basically. Well, that's a beautiful rundown, Sergeant Major. Thank you. So with that, let's, let's transition a little bit with who you're with right now. And then some yeah. of the, some of the pointers that we discussed the other day, uh, in a field training exercise. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, again, I, I retired. Um, I, I did, uh, 26 years active duty, and then I retired. Uh, I, I went to the DIA, and uh, so I was a DIA intelligence analyst for about 12 years at U.S. SOCOM doing the uh, the fine fix finish stuff. And so I, uh, they offered early retirement. I took that, and uh, ever since I've been working for the Global Special Operations Forces Foundation, or GSF. Now SOCOM has got um, service-like responsibilities, but they ne- they never had an advocate. You know, not like the Association of the United States Army advocates for the Army in the Navy League for the Navy, uh, but SOCOM, even with her service-like responsibilities, never had an advocate. So we petitioned for and were granted National Military Association status as as an advocate for SOF. So uh, so under that, as we started looking, okay, what are we going to do? Uh, we figured out that uh, you know, the, the guys were having issues, the guys and gals were having issues with uh, with this transition. So we, uh, so we started a program called SOF for Life. And, uh, and again, it is for life. It's not just to get you to your first job and then we wash our hands of you. It is for the remainder of your time on planet Earth. So, uh, so we conducted a software life survey. Uh, we, we, we advocate for our international partners, those that work the closest with us and also for us soft. So we had about 500 soft respondents from across 12 different countries. And I can tell you, we're all having the same problems with recruiting with retention and transition. So we learned that over half of our personnel were not ready for transition to civilian life. It was like about 53%. Now, 63% of those guys experienced stressors that negatively impacted uh, their marriages, their relationships, their employment, their health, and it also played a part in their suicides. Now, we learned that uh, about 80% are living with chronic pain. Uh, So we've also launched a medical survey to kind of help us understand what all that means. So then we started when uh, when guys that we knew started killing themselves, you know, people that we had talked to that seemed fine, 
Uh, we started looking into the multiple suicides and tried to deconstruct them. So we, we found five common themes across, uh, across all of them. And the themes were, uh, were faith, family, fitness, friends, and finances. So we called those the five pillars of resilience. So they actually act as resilience. They act as a backstop uh, and even a lifeline because I would ask guys to their face, have you ever thought of killing yourself? And in the beginning, I was shocked because over 90 some odd percent said, yes, haven't you? And I said, well, yeah, but that's just me. And, uh, but it's not just me. So if you guys are feeling that, you're not alone, number one. But I would ask them in the next, in the next voice, uh, you know, the next question was, well, why didn't you quit her? you know, trying to make a little levity of it. And they would all, it would all go back to faith, family, fitness, friends, or finances. So what we, uh, what we found is if we can find the veteran a new purpose with the same kind of fulfillment and resiliency that they experienced in the military and strike a balance between these five pillars, then every veteran is going to do well. Uh, but they've got to start early and they've got to plan. I mean, for some reason, our guys and gals will work till the last day and they'll step out of the military, which is a sheltered life. You live on base, your kids go to school on base, you know, you're told where to be, what time, what uniform. And it's not like that out in the civilian world. So the sheltered lifestyle seems, you know, kind of counterintuitive that you live in the military. You will miss that when you get out, when you walk out. So you've got to strike a balance. You got to start early and you got to plan. Um, because we found if you lose two of the five pillars that you can survive, uh, if you lose three or more of the pillars, you're prob it's probably not going to end well for you. And so, so we, as we looked at the suicides, it generally goes something like this, right? The guys and gals will see the horrors of, I mean, the first time you see a dead child, you, you doubt the existence of God. And uh, so they see things, they do things that, that, that doubts the existence. He, he, he could have helped but didn't. If he can't help, then what good is he? So... Yeah, they, they stop believing in something larger than themselves. Now, that's the religious part. There's also a secular part that when you see your nation turn your back on you and you lose you lose um, secular faith in the institutions, then you conclude that there's nothing bigger than yourself. And you've got to have something that you believe in that is bigger than yourself or be a part of. Right. So faith is, uh, is, is probably one of the main, you know, one of the main pillars. A lot of times the guys and gals, they will not confide in a friend because you're taught never shall I fail my comrades. So you wear a mask and you tell everybody that you're fine. Now, if, if, you're, a, if you're a ranger buddy, you can ask your ranger buddy how you're feeling and use the five pillars you know, to, to, to pull that out of them. But generally, the ranger or any of the guys are not guys and gals are not going to volunteer that information. They're going to wear that mask and then you're going to go, wow, I just talked to him. Now, your body's going to break. It, you're, you're going to lose your mental and your physical fitness. I mean, that is, that is a given. It's 100% because all these are it's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy. You know, the, uh, it depends on what the phase of life you're in where uh, you know, one will, will, will over, you know, overshadow the other. But your body is going to break. And you may choose to live with pain to avoid addiction. I know a lot of guys um, that, that are doing that. They're not taking the medications because they don't want to get hooked on the opioids. But then they just um, they just medicate in another way. They'll, 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 they'll drink till their liver explodes. Now, the last thing is, uh, you know, your fight or flight responses, they're short-circuited. A lot of, a lot of the, uh, the, the force suffers from PTS, post-traumatic stress, or TBIs from a lot of the explosions. So uh, a lot of the veterans are just a pain in the ass to be around. And if you're that guy or gal, you will eventually lose your family. So if you have no sense of purpose, 
you've got cascading personal issues, uh, your employability is, is at risk, your finances are going to suffer, and then you, you, know, you start losing these things. So, and the problem that we have is that a soldier is taught to develop three courses of action, right, to solve any of the, any of the problems. They all involve some level of violence, unfortunately. So he or she are going to come to the conclusion eventually that they're better off dead. And, uh, and that's what we have to try to fix. So what are we doing? All right, we're partnering with the Honor Foundation that started in the Navy SEAL community, and, uh, but it's spread out to the Army. They've got, uh, they're going to go to the Air Force. I think they're going to have one up at, uh, up at Hurlburt. They've got a camp, campus at Bragg, and they've got one on the West Coast. So the Honor Foundation, you know, is a uh, is about an eight week eight week course. You take it after um, after duty hours, and uh, it, it helps you find a new purpose. And then uh, once you've found your new purpose, we would try to to get you through SkillBridge to right seat ride with a company that uh, fits your purpose. You know, so you'll do an internship for about the last six months. And then we're also working to identify, but not replicate, veteran service organizations like Three Rangers. We're working uh, close with Mike Hall, the Gallant Few, and Tony Main. And uh, we want to force list them against the five pillars to get assistance that those from those who need it. So you get the five pillars across the top. You get the VSOs down the left hand. And wherever those X's intersect, that's the, that's the number that you call or the person that you contact. And uh, But again, understanding that disability is key. Uh, to obtaining compensation from the VA and also your medical care uh, because there's a lot of fixes that we're finding out from, from vetting these veteran services organizations for, for a lot of the maladies that, uh, that plague the force today. That was a great rundown. I <clears throat> really appreciate it. I think everybody on the, on the call does as well. We're going to continue on with the, this particular issue, Sergeant Major, and we'd love to have you back. Uh, and we have other people on the line at the same time and some of the, the future shows so thanks for your time uh keep your that uh, would be if, if, if i could if i could uh yeah. if i could just do one more uh oh, go ahead on, go on, ahead. on, dis- on disability there's a uh there, there's an ailment right now that's getting a lot of attention called operator syndrome mm-hmm. it's, it's af- actually allostatic load uh, but it's also known as uh, as operator syndrome and uh, basically you're the high allostatic load uh combined with traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress these are all those debilitating injuries that you can't see. So it's not like losing a limb or losing your eyesight. You know, it's, it's something that's, uh, that, that's, that's in your mind and in your body, but it's not outward. And the bottom line to uh, the allostatic load is that uh, high stress you know, combined with adrenaline rushes, you know, followed by the crashes, uh, the lack of sleep, you know, the, your, your, your reverse work schedules, you're in a combat zone, you're, you're not sleeping well, you develop sleep disorders like sleep apnea. So that creates high cortisol levels and it lowers your testosterone. And so the testosterone heals your body and it happens when you sleep. So if you have low T and you can't sleep, then your body is going to break down, you know, with cascading effects. Now what the command has done, SOCOM, uh, they have a program called preservation of the force and family, and they use their own funds to treat um, soft professionals like professional athletes. So they established a human performance center at each 06 level of command. And these centers are staffed with the personal trainers, physical therapists, and psychologists. And then you also see the chaplain checking in every now and again. So uh, that, is, that, I think, has been a game changer uh, and a huge leap forward. You know, the, uh, the only thing that we're, uh, that we're worried about is that as, as the big bureaucracy scrambles you know, to, uh, to take care of the peace dividend, that, uh, that soft will, uh, will be back to square one. 
and uh, like I like to say, there, there's a lot of treatments for allostatic load. But I, but I would uh, I would I would ask the guys to go out there and, and, and take a look at that. And uh, there, there's a lot of study online and see if um, see if you're feeling some of those. Uh, you know, get your blood work done. See if you're feeling some of those uh, issues. Appreciate that wrap up on that. And uh, again, more to come. So thank you so much, Sergeant Major. Ua. Thank you, sir. Man, it's great to, great to hear from you again. Yeah, same here, buddy. All right. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. Okay, on the line with us right now, we have Command Sergeant Major Retired, Mike Hall. And welcome to the show, Mike. Appreciate you coming on. Well, thanks for having me on, General. I appreciate it. Uh, could you tell the other GIs listening to the show tonight uh, on Veterans Day uh, a little bit about yourself before we start? Yeah, I grew up uh, near Cleveland, Ohio. Joined the Army right out of high school in 1976. Went straight to 1st Ranger Battalion. Uh, was basically there from uh, 1976 to '95. I did an ROTC duty job at the uh, Citadel uh, for about two years while I was there. Uh, made command sergeant major, uh, was a CSM of 318 701st. Got called back to be the regimental sergeant major, the 75th. Uh, then went up to be the CSM of Joint Special Operations Command uh, just before 9 11. Uh, moved over or moved up to the United States Army Special Operations Command. Retired in 2008, uh, was out for about a year, and then got uh, recalled to active duty uh, to be the uh, CSM of, of ISAF and U.S. Forces Afghanistan. So li- living now in uh, near Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, worked for a while after I got out, and I'm sort of retired, retired now, and 
and uh, working on a few nonprofits boards, but most specifically the executive director of the Three Rangers Foundation. Okay, wonderful. Great, great career. Congratulations on that. And I, and I know uh, you've uh, helped and, and made a lot of, a lot of good uh, soldiers out there. Uh, tonight, uh, if you could just talk to us a bit about the transition of a GI to civilian life, uh, kind of what you see out there, what you have seen, what you see now, and what can be done about it. I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, the, the Army has made some strides, uh, but the Army is a big organization, and uh, they keep investing in it. I, this, is, this is not to say that, the, you know, to, to denigrate what the Army is doing, but, uh, you know, the Army's not really too good at it because nobody in the Army has ever transitioned before. Uh, so, you know, that there's some programs in place, but again, it, it's such a wide variety of, of, of folks. And I, I think in many cases, you know, s- soldiers got to realize they have to own transition. And I also think, and, and I know the army is, is thinking about this, you know, every soldier is going to transition out of the army at some point. I mean, some people like us, you know, say 30 plus years, you know, but obviously the vast majority of people will do their first enlistment and get out. So I think the Army could do a better job of really, you know, the, the day they walk into the Army of, uh, you know, helping them prepare for transition, uh, you know, and, and I think, you know, the the, uh, the three Rangers program, we have what's called the Big Five of Transition that supports the Ranger Regiment's uh, transition program and, and uh, you know, making sure that they understand what their VA benefits they, they earn while they're in their service. I mean, that's important to people and that they don't understand that while they're in there and how they can prepare. They don't understand you know, what they can take advantage of while they're in the service, you know, that's going to benefit them when they transition out. Uh, one of those big things is, is education. The Army's got a lot of good education programs that, that, that folks don't take care of, don't uh, don't take advantage of. And, uh, you know, units in many cases can do a better job of facilitating that. Uh, uh, I know many units out there are able to balance, you know, their their, their requirements and, their, and, and, and ensure people get education or have a chance for their education, uh, making sure understand, uh, soldiers understand, you know, financial wellness, you know, it's, uh, I saw some, some statistics where, where, you know, many soldiers, they have no idea what the TSP even is and, uh, you know, what, what kind of program it is. And, uh, it's maybe not, it's, it's, you know, it's maybe not get rich quick, but, but it's, it's, it's a good plan and it can certainly set you up for success again, if, even if you get out after three years or you get out after, after 30 years. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, also doing a better job educating soldiers on, uh, physical fitness and, 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 uh, you know, many folks will go through some physical things while they're in the service that they wouldn't normally go through, uh, do a better job of, of, of making people understand how to take better care of their bodies and, um, you know, perhaps more emphasis on, on, uh, mental well-being too. So. Those are some things, uh, you know, let alone with uh, uh, working with companies to uh, to uh, when soldiers, when it comes time to transition, to make sure they got a smooth transition and into worthwhile work. So I appreciate that. And I know that uh, having uh, worked with you a little bit on the Three Rangers Foundation, that's just one example. It's, it's focused on the Rangers, uh, but it's a good model. And uh, there's, if you take... Uh, Global Soft Foundation, you know, they're looking at the, holistically all of soft, and then of course there's other uh, foundations out there. And I don't, I'm not sure that the everybody understands what these foundations are doing across the United States. There's no other service, uh, a country in the world that has foundations like the United States of America. 
Foundations focused on the civilian population. Foundations focused on the American GI. Uh, there, no country can match it. It's a, it's a, if you look at the Center of Philanthropy in, Philanthropy in Indianapolis, Indiana, they have the statistics, and it's, it's unbelievable. It's almost like the military power example compared to other, other nations. And so, but they make a difference, and they, and they, they kind of either they make up for voids in the, in the, in the government agencies, or they complement each other. And so, it's a, it's a, it's a great thing that we have. Uh, like you said, a lot of troops don't understand what's out there, or how to get into it, or how to uh, get the things that they deserve. And and so, this show going forward, we're going to try to explain that our guests in more detail to really help mentor, guide uh, GIs getting out of the military and transitioning to the civilian life uh, as best that we can. So, Sergeant Major, I really appreciate you being on the show with us tonight. More to come. I hope we can have you again. Any recommendations you have on the show, I appreciate you sharing those with us going forward. Yeah, I'd love to come back and uh, and share my thoughts on on how we can – uh, you know, some of the things that I've seen, you know, the good things and the bad things to, uh, th- that we can all take advantage of. As you said, there's a lot of good programs out there and, uh, we know we need to do a better job of educating people, uh, of, of the gaps that, 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 that uh, they can fill that, that DA and, and, uh, the veterans administration just cannot fill and, uh, make, making, making soldiers understand what's available. Thanks. Thanks again for having me, sir. Right, Always good Thank you. Talk to you again yeah, soon. Yes, sir. Bye. All right, our next guest tonight is an individual named Eric. And Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here, sir. I appreciate your time tonight and uh, talking to the other veterans uh, on the line with you and I. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. I uh, joined the Army in 1987. So I was in for quite a while before uh, the 9-11 attacks happened. I was an infantry uh, soldier, an armor soldier, and then I joined Special Forces in 1995 and uh, was uh, well along in my Special Forces career when the towers fell on 9-11. And uh, since 9-11, I've, uh, I've been involved in 15 combat deployments, both uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, and a couple other places as, as well. And um, so have been, uh, I think the total is uh, between seven and eight years of time downrange uh, in the war on terror. There you go. That's a long time. And, and uh, I'm going to ask you a couple of things about the war on terror after uh, we touch on a key subject tonight, and that's disabled veterans. Was it worth it? And I'd like to have your perspective on, on uh, saying a few comments about that. Okay, sir. Well, thanks. And thanks for the opportunity to, to be here and to share some of my thoughts with with both you and uh, also the veterans out there in veteran land. Uh, for me, I'll speak for myself. Uh, I won't speak for other veterans, but for me, uh, it absolutely was worth it. Uh, I'm, I'm disabled. Uh, I've been banged up quite a bit uh, over the years, uh, but for me, it was worth it. And uh, I will say that that uh, my experience in talking with other veterans, particularly those of us that are severely disabled, disfigured, uh, dismembered. Uh, I haven't encountered a single uh, seriously disabled veteran who doesn't think that it was worth it. And to me, that's incredibly encouraging, and that speaks a lot about those that uh, serve the nation. So um, 
Uh, but for myself, uh, it was definitely worth it, and I'd do it all over again if, if I had the opportunity to do it. Did uh, how about uh, the programs that we have to support disabled veterans? Um, do you think everything's running as well as it should? Everything always can be improved, obviously, just like training. But uh, have you seen any areas that uh, maybe personnel on our show and, and other organizations can uh, do more to help the veterans that are disabled? Uh, I, I think there's two, two, two pieces to this, sir. Uh, the, the first part is uh, uh, I would say there are great people out there uh, in the community that want to help veterans, that care about veterans, especially uh, those veterans that were injured, wounded, uh, otherwise uh, in combat. And, and I've bumped into them along the line of my own journey uh, through the years of service and then now that I'm, I'm retired. Uh, and when you find those people, they make a difference. They want to make a difference. And I, so I'm encouraged by that. And, and, and I would hope that you know other veterans out there would treat everyone in that system as an individual because uh, I've, I've met some incredible people that have done gone above and beyond to help me out and help my family out. Uh, the process is probably just as bureaucratic and frustrating and complex as it's ever been. And I think that's where, um, you know, a combination of, of military leaders and, and government leaders could focus to try and streamline the process. Um, it, it, nothing makes sense. Things take a long time uh, and, and policies contradict each other. Uh, and, and so, I think the final piece to my answer would be veterans themselves owe it to themselves, they have a responsibility to themselves and to their fellow veterans, their brothers and sisters, to educate themselves and to get smart on that process because um, I find myself bumping into people that haven't retired yet, uh, fellow, fellow service members that haven't retired, and they don't have any understanding of, of uh, all of the resources that are available out there and the processes to get those. So I think it's a it's a three-part solution. Continue to get good people in the system that want to help veterans. Streamline the process and make it simple. It shouldn't be as complicated as it is. And then absolutely, veterans need to take responsibility for taking care of themselves, just like we did uh, when we were in uniform. Great points. And in fact, uh, streamlining the process and a few of the other points you hit, we're going to work on that uh, on our show, and we have a few few solutions to help that. Uh, I'd like to transition a minute uh, because of the number of, of, of KIA, WIA, uh, both military and civilians uh, from the 20 years of war and terror, Iraq and Afghanistan, and also other places like Libya, Yemen, uh, Syria, as examples. 9-11, uh, uh, on through when we left uh, Afghanistan just recently, uh, all this continuous conflict, multiple tours like you've had, uh, the results of our efforts, uh, the, the, the resources, mainly people, followed by costs and some other areas. Uh, what's your feeling on that? What, what, what is going to happen? We're still in Iraq, reduced force, but we're still in Iraq. We left Afghanistan rapidly. Uh, a lot of chaos over there right now. Uh, what's happening with China, Russia, Pakistan, and Iran as the big players uh, influencing what's going on in and around Afghanistan. And then the smaller players, uh, as an example, like uh, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, as examples. Uh, and just the different 
way people are treated, the uh, Hazaris, the Pashtun, the, the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, uh, the different terrorist groups, ISI, ISK, um, ISIS, uh, Taliban, Taliban, Pakistan, um, Al-Qaeda, etc. What's your feeling of what's going to happen? How is it going to affect uh, our GIs going forward, morale, readiness, and possible vulnerabilities on global operations? Uh, that's a great question, sir. Uh, again, I'll speak for myself. I won't pretend to be a uh, spokes spokesman for uh, the rest of the veteran community, but uh, we're pretending like there's not a fight out there, and we are still in a fight, uh, both against terrorists and then against pure competitors out there. And and to to pretend that uh, we can somehow dial down in the, in the war on terror, and that the terrorists will stop hating us and stop planning and plotting and preparing to attack us, uh, not only emboldens them and encourages them and validates their misguided beliefs, but it also, uh, you know, on, on a level emboldens peer competitors because they look at the United States and, and uh, they see a lack of resolve, a lack of will, and a lack of commitment. And so none of that can be blamed on veterans. And I know for myself, uh, I was very privileged and um, uh, happy to go over and serve. And so I don't have a lot of bitterness for, for the decisions that are made uh, in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere uh, because uh, my, my buddies and I did our part. But I believe that uh, the United States and, and all the veteran community, we have responsibility to look honestly at the world and realize that uh, to turn a blind eye to what's going on out there does a disservice to those that – made the ultimate sacrifice in the war on terror and other conflicts, uh, but also uh, does a disservice to, the, to the, the current and the future generation of, of military members that are out there that will be asked to go and solve problems by uh, rolling the dice with their lives in the future because we didn't see those problems for what they were uh, when we had time to shape, shape the situation. So uh, right now, I, I'm disappointed in the leadership in D.C. And, and what they have uh, decided to do, and I think we'll pay for it in the future, and uh, that is an unfortunate situation. Well, I appreciate your perspective, and uh, you have a lot of experience over there, and I appreciate you taking it from the strategic down to the tactical level and back up again. That was, that was wonderful. Good comments. Uh, whether people take it negative or positive, it just it was good, strong comments because of someone that's been on the ground. So I appreciate it. Eric, your country is extremely lucky to have had you serve, and I know anyone listening to this broadcast would be very proud to know you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right, good night. Good night, Eric, and hope to have you back on with us again. Thank you so much. Good night, gentlemen. Thank you. Good night. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Okay, our next guest, Jury Hansen, military uh, intelligence uh, background, and welcome to our show tonight. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Yeah, thanks for being on and uh, with uh, with uh, with the show, and also with the veterans listening tonight. So, give us a little bit of your background, real quick, if you would. Well, uh, I'll try not to make it uh, too long, but, uh, you know, everybody's from different parts of the 
different parts of the uh, the states, and I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm very proud of that. And um, but went to school at University of Montana, and went on to active duty from there, and uh, did 22 years. Very, uh, you know, very proud to serve, but also very happy to retire, if that makes sense. Sure. And what are you doing now? I am back in my hometown, a little tiny town, and I feel like it it needs some help. And uh, I'm proud to uh, volunteer in uh, different community groups and uh, and also the our local township and leaders and um, just trying to help out. And then I, I do photography uh, on the side. And, you know, really, it's a it's a neat way of life. But uh, I took over the family homestead and, you know, I'm, I'm very proud to uh you know, kind of carry that mantle forward. Great. And so you, your, your, your civic service continues after being a GI. So thanks for that. And uh, I personally feel that's a duty of all Americans. Uh, so well done. And anyway, so tonight I'd like to get your perspective on transitioning. And you just gave an example, transitioning from being a, an American soldier uh, to civilian life. So you're, just some comments on... on uh, to help other veterans out, where we are, where we're going, good things, bad things, whatever you, whatever you feel and experience, we'd love to hear it. I think, um, I think my overall feeling is that it's a journey and that you, as you're, whether you're getting out of the service or you're, uh, you know, after four years or 10, or if you're retiring, I think that you don't have to have it all planned out and that you can feel a lot of pressure. And I do think you need to be proactive and investigate things and and have a place to start, but a place where you can have those branches and sequels available to you. So, you know, I started off, I used my post 9-11 GI Bill and, uh, and took a veterinary assistant course, you know, because it was something that you know, in all those years in the military, it was something that I always wanted to explore and, uh, it, you know, and was interested in it. And I had an idea that that maybe I could be, a, you know, an, an owner, a co-owner of a veterinary clinic and help run it. But, uh, you know, so that was just a, a neat thing to do. Um, I ended up kind of going a different direction. And, you know, I, I think figuring out where you want to spend your, you know, your next chapter is is important and so i ended up coming back to my hometown and taking over the family household and you know and and really kind of found my footing there great so uh the homestead do you have do you uh is there livestock you raise there or grow crops or (laughs) what do you do i actually i'm yeah you know i'm from a, a really cool little town where the appalachian trail uh runs on one side of a spring fed lake and so I have this beautiful combination of being in this historic little town, um, but yet there's all this activity, there's all this recreation, there's, you know, there's people that are out walking or jogging. And, and so I'm actually in the middle of town, but with incredible um, wildlife that's happening, you know, right there on the lake. And it's sort of a, it's a unique thing and it's got a cool ecology because it never freezes and in the winter time and, you know, so it's it, it's something that was very interesting to me, 
you know, for me, it dates, you know, there's a, there's something that's reminiscent of my step-grandparents who owned and operated a zoo, a, a small, you know, small zoo. And so there's kind of a throwback there because they were raising waterfowl, uh, you know, there at the property and started a petting zoo and, you know, all that, all that good stuff. So it was, you know, it was interesting to me, you know, just to come back there. But, um, but no, I actually have gotten into hobby farming. And, uh, and so it's fascinating to raise little chicks and have them become, you know, laying hens and have names and watch them free range and dodge hawks and fox. And, you know, and now we've actually gotten into, um goats you know so there's just so much that's out there that you can explore and you know i think setting it up so that you don't have to have the ultimate answer and you just treat whatever that next phase is a beginning of your journey and just keeping you know keeping yourself flexible but i think the hardest thing for me was to be so busy with the military it it took over so much of my life uh, and then all of a sudden you just had this blank palette uh, if you're retiring a lot less money <laughs> one of the things I've noticed in all of the volunteering is that um, you begin to realize that the you do have a skill set coming out of the military that's um, that's very much appreciated and in demand. You have good organizational skills. You're, you know, reasonably proficient at expressing yourself. Um, you're able to stand up and, you know, uh, in front of others and it doesn't, you know, shut you down. Um, you know, some people have just a, a terrible fear of public speaking and, you know, other things and, and they're afraid to be in charge of anything. And so, you know, there's a, you know, they're, they want to help, but they don't want to be in charge. And so there's, you know, there is that aspect of it. Um, I think as far as, um, uh, you know, friends transitioning, you know, for me, I was retiring. And so I knew I had that retirement salary that, you know, to kind of to back me. And um, I felt very strongly that uh, I did not, I, I knew that I wanted to take um, a harder path, and that was to not take a GS job and, you know, have the government service, you know, it was just, it, it was just too similar to my military career, and I just knew that I wanted to take a harder path, even if it, and it was, it was, it was, um, you know, something that, you know, that was very, very stressful, but, uh, but in the end, I think it was, I feel that it was worth it, but you certainly could step stone into a GS job and, you know, kind of get your feet on the ground. And I think it makes, that also makes another nice, you know, segue into, you know, whatever that next chapter is. But I knew that I wanted to explore a lot of things that I couldn't or didn't get, you know, didn't have a reasonable opportunity to do while I had been on active duty. And that's the, you know, that was the, the path. That's great, Jory. What did you retire as? I retired as a Lieutenant Colonel. Good. 
And did you, did you craft a plan for yourself or did you just simply make the, the decision to uh, leave the army and drop your papers? I knew, as I was in Afghanistan, I hit the 20-year mark. And so I knew from there that it was just all about uh, a smooth transition. But it was still, you know, even though I knew I was going to have a paycheck, the, the month after I retired, it was still very stressful because it's what you had done for 22 years. And before that, you were in college for example. So, um, I, you know, I, I knew I just wanted to, I wasn't really interested in, in a, a lot of education, but I knew that I had this eligibility and I thought, you know what, I'd really like to go explore some things. And so that, that's really where it started. But very quickly I knew that, you know, home was Pennsylvania. And so I'd retired out in Colorado. And for me, it was, um, you know, it was tough because there were a lot of things I loved out there, but in the end, I just, I made that, that decision to come back to Pennsylvania and to, to really start, you know, start a life there and, and truly explore it and give back to the community that I was, you know, going back to while I was on leave, you know, so many times and, and, and benefiting from it. That's great. Well, thanks. And I think what we'd like to do is invite you on a further show to talk about some other issues that we'll discuss offline. Okay. It sounds great. Sounds great. Thanks so much. I, Thank I really you so much. That was great. We and happy Veterans it. Day. Yeah. And I was in first AD. So I'd like to say that I, I, the whole time I was in first armor division, I always wished I was in first infantry. Well, division. of course you did. Of course you did. We <laughs> used all your ammo. Of course you did. All right. Good night. And thank you very much. Good night. All right. Thank you. Okay. Our next guest on the show is uh, a Marine, and it's a Marine Corps birthday today. So uh, happy uh, birthday there, Trey Sharp. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> We're looking pretty good for 246. That's all I got to say about that. Just remember, the <laughs> Army's birthday was before yours. However, <laughs> however, thanks for being on the show, and, and if you would, uh, give us a little background on yourself, about 30 seconds, and then we're going to go in. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions on uh, PTSD, TBI. Roger that. Well, my name is Trey Sharp. I joined the Marine Corps at 17, uh, left West Texas, uh, country boy, and played a little bit of football and uh, did, a, did a tour in the infantry and went overseas a few times. Um, left the Marine Corps and... Uh, Used my GI Bill, went to college, and had a little bit of an education. Uh, did various types of work, both in uh, politics and and uh, you know also just uh, you know regular labor. Um, but I eventually got into a program that helps uh, veterans uh, do business with the government, and uh, that's that's been a game changer for me and has helped me provide for my family. And, and so I have a um, medical supply company and then I just partnered up with a very esteemed army general for a tactical company. And we are going to be uh, uh, selling tactical gear through the military exchange. Excellent. Well, great. And I appreciate you on tonight uh, for this show this week. And it's not going to be the same going forward, but you are the only Marine with us tonight. So thanks for your time and uh, duty. 
Um, well, I can understand you wanting to limit the Marine Corps influence. We can be a bit much at times. Yeah, so. yeah I understand. <laughs> I proudly served beside Marines in combat, so I, it's okay. Anyhow, so, so here's what we like to do. We like to talk a little bit about PTSD and TBI, which many say is the signature wound for the last 20 years, ever, pretty much since 9-11. doesn't mean it wasn't there before, obviously. Uh, the 100-yard stare. Combat fatigue. Uh, there's other names for it. But in the old days, especially with older guys like me, uh, you would never say to anyone, oh, I have problems sleeping. Uh, I have to drink too much because of what I saw. And you had the same symptoms, but you really couldn't say anything. If I, if I went in and said, no, I can't sleep at night, and I'm, I'm really having these terrible dreams, and I'm stressed out, there's no way in my generation would you get the next command. It just wouldn't happen. So no one said it. Very few said it. Now it's ex- accepted, as it should be, as, as, a, as a wound, as a war wound. Just like in the civilian world, uh, many police officers, many firefighters, many women uh, have PTSD for different traumatic experiences. So it, it is recognized, and people are, are more open about it and forthcoming and understanding. Though there are problems. I mean, you would think that after 20 years, we would have a, a, several drugs, not just a therapy, but several drugs that are non-addicting that would help on PTSD. And having worked in the medical field myself for the last 10 years, with biotech, biopharma, farm, big pharma, whatever, doing drug development and that, that we're not really there yet. There's stuff out there, but not as, as good as it should be. I don't personally think enough resources have been put against it in order to solve the problem. It's ridiculous, especially if it's a signature wound. Not that other wounds are more or not horrific, but it is a terrible wound. And so anyway, so take that and just apply it to, you're over there in Afghanistan or in Iraq or whatever, uh, the results and the effects it's having on the military today and what maybe could be done about it from, from your foxhole and, 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 and uh, where we need to improve. Well, one of the things you said kind of hits the nail on the head. It, it is a different type of wound. And one of the problems you find with both TBI and PTSD is there's not always an apparent issue that you can see with your eyes. You know, if if you lose a foot or you lose, you know, something or you, you have a scar, but when that scar is internal, it, it can make it hard for somebody to feel comfortable coming forward. Like you said, you know, in the old days, you just had to keep your mouth shut and, and suck it up. And what I have found for me as somebody that has dealt with both TBI and PTSD is that, you know, the sooner you get a handle on it and the sooner you admit, Hey, I, I need a little bit of help. You know, the easier it is to correct that problem. You know, time and time again, we've seen veterans that, you know, had relationship issues or sometimes legal issues, job issues, homelessness. And it's because they, you know, weren't able or, or uh, you know, were, were unwilling to, to ask for help. So, uh, you know, if there's one message I could have uh, for veterans on Veterans Day and, and my brothers and sisters in the Marine Corps, it's, you know, realize, uh, you know, it, it is real. It, it is an injury, and, and it's something that 
we don't have to be afraid to say, hey, I need a little bit of help. You know, you take the lack of sleep, uh, you know, that's when your body heals. That's when your body rests and gets prepared for the next day. And, you know, for me, not being able to sleep well at night was the root cause of a lot of the problems I had. And we kept trying to treat it with medication that was treating the symptoms. But but it, it took me a number of years to get involved into a program that treated the root cause. And, um, you know, if it wasn't for that, I, I wouldn't be able to be the father and the husband, the business partner, you know, uh, be able to enjoy life like I do. And so, uh, you know, the, I, I would say that that's one of the hardest things about PTSD and TBI is, uh, you know, th- there's not always that visible scar. So, you, you know, on day one, you have to get people to take you seriously. And that can be difficult. Yeah, let me, you know, I, I have a feeling that, and I may be wrong, that part of the problem, too, that uh, I've been in several wars and conflicts, and, and I, they're all you know, somewhat different in some cases. I mean, injuries aren't. I mean, you get shot, you get shot. If you lose a uh, part of your body or, or scarred or whatever, they're the same. But what's different is the situation. So as an example, let me go back to Vietnam. In Vietnam, you had a situation where you had no communications back home, except for letters. Now and then, you would get on what they call a Mars call on a radio, and, and you had to stand in line for that. And that may happen once every three months or something. But it really was letters. I mean, letters were a big thing. No one writes letters really anymore. But now, if you're an FOB, you know, an FOB, Forward Operating Base, and you go out on a mission. Maybe text or iPad or something, whether your command says you can or cannot, and you know what happens. You're talking at home. Girlfriend, wife, husband, whatever, boyfriend, whatever the case may be. Or when you come back in, you do. And it may just be a six-hour mission to come back in. I'm not saying it's less dangerous, but the circumstances of the conditions are different. And so you come back in, and all of a sudden you're talking at home about things at home, about someone missing soccer practice or this has to be done in the yard or whatever. I mean, it was portrayed very well in the movie Hurt Locker. And, and, all, and then at the same time, in that patrol, maybe uh, you hit an IED and you had some horrific wounds to some of your buddies. And then you're transitioning, talking on the iPad or communicating on the iPad, and, you, and it's a different world. And you can't, it's hard to separate it. And one's influencing the other. And it's very difficult, I think, for people mentally to handle that. You're not you, you, you lose, you're not focused on a task at hand like you would be where you don't have that kind of communications. Well, I and remember so when I, I think, first. I think that I think that affects actually PTSD. I may be wrong, but that's my feel theory. That makes sense to me. I, I remember whenever I first went in, you know, in the early '90s. You know, you'd spend seven, eight months overseas, you know, uh, you know, as a Marine, we're usually cargo on a ship sitting off the coast somewhere. But we'd call going home, going back to the world. And so, in a sense, you're able to compartmentalize your experience and where you were. And it was you and your buddies in a far off place. And it really seemed far off. And, and, I remember the transitions back home and, you know, you'd think in your head, you know, a week ago I was, you know, 
in some wild place that I really can't explain to people. And now I'm telling someone to pass the potatoes at Thanksgiving and it, it was very surreal. So genuinely, uh, I think there's probably some truth to that statement that, that, that rapid transition back and forth can in a way normalize some of the stuff that, that you have to deal with. And, and another thing I'd, I'd like to say too, for veterans that are out there is, you know, don't feel like one of my issues is I didn't speak up at certain points because I, I felt like I hadn't been as hurt as bad as some of my buddies or I didn't, ex- you know, I, I kept trying to evaluate my level of worse, you know, and, and coming from, you know, a, a unit and, and a culture where, you know, you're, you're taught to suck it up. You know, that's, that's, that's the way you, uh, you know, go about things you feel like you're doing right by you know i don't want to waste the doctor's time you know compared to what you know like my experience in military compared to to your decades of service is minuscule but that doesn't mean that that five minutes that i experienced didn't have you know a profound effect and so we, we we have to get away from from everybody trying to rate themselves and decide if they're worth it because they are yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's an issue that we're going to talk a lot more about. Uh, it needs to be taken care of because uh, it's not going to go away. Uh, it, it's just the just the GI trying to talk to the civilian community in a transition to civilian life in in school, like college. You know, over fifty percent. I think it's sixty three percent. VA study and a few other organizations, I think, stated that. Professors and fellow students do not understand uh, the GI. They don't understand, and they have some issues there. And and so I think that's true, because if you make that comment I made on social media, a lot of people can't comprehend that. Well, that's just how we operate. But when you yeah. tie that to combat, it really is tough. I really believe that. Because uh, you're... Coming on Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving in the mess hall in a, in a forward operating base as you're looking at the iPad of Thanksgiving home with grandparents or whatever. You're kind of torn. If it's a letter, it, it just doesn't have that effect. It's like almost after the fact. But when it's real time, it's tough. And then you tie that to combat and it makes it tougher. It was tougher, it's tougher on GIs today than it was on me, I think, in that situation. But anyhow... Trey, we'd like to have you back, and, uh, and we're going we're gonna to continue on with the PTSD, TBI issue uh, going forward. And I appreciate you being on the show tonight. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Thank you. Right, cool. Happy birthday. Okay, in our audience tonight, we have one of our guests, a friend, Matt Listener, here from near Chicagoland, Illinois. And he has a few comments tonight on the show. And, Matt, please share your comments with us. General, thank you so much. One takeaway that I was struck with is uh, your comments with Trey earlier that the civilian life does not really appreciate that whole dynamic between what the warrior goes through now as opposed to what you folks went through 30, 40 years ago, the letter writing. Right now, everything's in real time. And it's very poignant that you bring that up with the Thanksgiving holiday come up. It never occurred to me that you'd be seeing your grandparents, your child, your wife, your boyfriend, 
And then two hours later, you're at a forward operating base under heavy fire. That transition, that's ominous. And how to handle that is, I, I don't know if most appreciate that. You know, when, think about the ages of a young GI. You had, you know, one, one sergeant major 17 years old, right? Went in, 18, 19. My father went in at 17. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, you're really, you're not old enough to go to a bar and buy a beer. Right. Uh, and so it's pretty tough going out of high school and being put in that situation. It's like someone said in the show tonight, much in the life taken of a young little kid. Right. It's tough. And so throw in what you just said, and you can see why the mental issue is something that has to be taken on more aggressively. The United States can do it, and it has to do it. Otherwise, the volunteer force is in jeopardy. Yeah, it's, it is in jeopardy. And when you are in civilian life and you go from high school to college to work, there, there, there's a, a gradual appreciation and acclimation you get to events. But when you take somebody out of high school and throw them right into the boiling pot and then ask them to be normal when they come back here with no guidance, that's a tough issue. It's a big call. It is. And in today's, today's society, uh, less and less recruits have experiences in arduous environments. Um, Many never slept in the woods overnight, fired a weapon, carried a pack for 12-mile road march. Now, some have. I'm, not, I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. A lot less, even when I served, a lot less my, first, my last 10, 10 years than my first 20. So the units had to have more responsibility training people to bring them up to a, they were comfortable in a tough environment. But you can't pick your time. When you're told to deploy sometimes, you go. And you go with the people you have at the level of training that they have. And so you throw them in the, in the environment that we just talked about after they came out of a, a softer type society. It's very challenging for a soldier. With, and I know this has been dear to your heart for a long time, what would be the number one recommendation you would have, not only for the military, but those civilian organizations that, you know, want to tackle this issue? Well, one is that, you know, in drug development, as an example, mm-hmm. right now a lot of the treatments that aren't psychological but they are with drug uh, use is that they're addicting. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there, there are organizations working hard on that. I believe more should be government financed because – GI is government issue, right? Right. And so it's kind of a federal responsibility to take on issues like this. So they ought to have better incentives or encouragement, obviously, to to do development on on treatment for PTSD and TBI. And prosthetics, I mean, we're way ahead. I mean, we've done very well, but not on mental health issues. It's lacking. And there's no reason why the government can't step up. It's, it's the signature wound. Sure. So why not? Right. Well, the stigma of mental illness. Yeah. 
Well, Matt, thanks a lot for being on the show tonight. I appreciate uh, you joining us, and I uh, look forward to seeing you again. Pleasure's mine. Thank All you, right. sir. Thank you. Okay, as, uh, as we wrap up tonight, I want to ask my Ranger buddy, commonly known in Downers Grove as Ranger Doug, to make a few statements. We covered a wide range of issues on this show, the inaugural show of the Veterans Radio R2.0. We've segued very well from 2002 to 2003 at the beginning of the war and, and now looking at it from the other end. There's a famous gentleman who said, you know, when you're working towards an objective, imagine you already reached it and look back. We probably didn't do a real good job of that because after 20 years, we really didn't know what we started with and we didn't maintain focus on the policy. We allowed mission creep, but we also forgot that it was the first large attack against the continental United States since the War of 1812. We let our guard down, we forgot certain basic rules, and we must seek as a nation to keep our vigilance up because in this period we're extremely vulnerable and we appear to have uh, found the, our ability to defend ourselves somewhat suffering. Above all, we've got to be considerate of the fact that we draw our forces from a very small slice of the populace. I looked at figures the other day that said that about 30% of American youth are actually qualified to serve. That means that we're going to have trouble in the future unless some changes are made in filling the force and keeping it filled. And then as we've looked at past wars, especially those that have gone very hot, like World War I, World War II, and even Vietnam, where do you get your reserves from? Where do you get your replacements from? And do you have to consider such things as a draft? So these are things that, that lie in the future. But I think we're going to find that this period for, for many becomes kind of like the depression was to the greatest generation. For those of us that are alive now, young and old, we'll remember this as our depression. And coming out of this, there are people that are probably in very unassuming positions right now, but that like Americans always do, they're going to take a kind of an entrepreneurial, individual approach to leadership, and they're going to build things like some of the people we've heard tonight describe what they're doing. And out of this, we're gonna see, I think, a very robust reconstruction of our American ideal moving forward. It very well could be that this is going to produce a kind of a fourth, not necessarily an awakening, but an invigoration of America so that it becomes kind of like what happened after, after World War II. That's my hope anyway, that, that this will produce for us a series of other greatest generations and we will not be left hanging. The one thing we need to remember though is that we're always gonna be fighting people who want what we have or despise what we do. And no matter how good we think we are or how nice we are, we're not dealing with people who ascribe to our goals and objectives or beliefs. What we did in Afghanistan and Iraq was we tried to mirror image ourselves on those countries, and yet their cultures were separated from us by such a wide gulf that that is impossible to achieve. We go out next time to do something like this. We have to understand a partner needs to make several steps towards us and we toward them. But the ultimate objective is after a finite period of time, owing to elections and other things, we have to be able to withdraw the balance of our force. Therefore, when we go in, we've got to think about five years or so to train up a force to beat an enemy in a way that gets to the enemy's psychology and stops it from fighting. That's the one thing I think we kind of lost the bubble on uh, as we went into these conflicts because they just dragged on too long. And in the end, our leadership made what for them and, and for us probably was, was the best decision. Now, what do we do with that? Well, that's up to us to figure out. And there are those of us who are on this show many more who will be listening, I'd advise all of us to devote our, our lives, our thoughts, and even as we say from our founders, our sacred honor to the idea that we've got to devise some defenses for this country rapidly. Veterans Broadcast Network is a radio station that provides news, content, and information to veterans and their dependents. 
We have three shows as part of our stable. The first is Wounded But Not Broken, hosted by Patrick Scroggin, a wounded aviator, and its discussion is about overcoming your disabilities and becoming the best version of yourself. Very enlightening show. The second is Roll Call, hosted by Kenny DeCamp and his co-host Nadine Noki. Talks about what role you played in or in support of the military. And finally here, the Veterans Radio R, we call it Veterans Radio R 2.0, hosted by General Dave Grange. This show is about the military past, present, and future, and also discussing aspects of veterans, the geopolitical situation, current events, and other topics of note, various guests and call-ins to each show. Thank you. So thank you for being on our show tonight, Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. Our next show is about POWs and MIAs. And we're also going to follow up on some additional discussions on 9-11 plus 20 years, the results of the last 20 years of combat, PTSD and TBI, disabled veterans, and transition to civilian life. There's a couple of things I'd like to wrap up from the, the subjects tonight. And when it comes to my heart, my mind is the fifth stanza of the Ranger Creed. It kind of hits on these issues that we're facing today. It has to do with combat overseas. It has to do with transition and care for the GI. In the fifth stanza of the Ranger Creed states, Energetically will I meet the enemies of my country. I shall defeat them on the field of battle, for I am better trained and will fight with all my might. Surrender is not a ranger word. I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy, and under no circumstances will I ever embarrass my country. Now, if you think about, and this is the part that bothers me personally a little bit, our departure from Afghanistan, the way we conducted it. Energetically meet the enemies of my country. Surrender is not a ranger word. Never shall I embarrass my country. These are salient points for the rangers and most veterans that I know. I want to again thank tonight our host, GTS Transportation and Dallas Corporation, where we're in the studio tonight in Downers Grove, Illinois. Thank you. All the way, Hua. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. We are changing the world one show at a time.